The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and joining me today on the National Committee's China podcast is Terry Lotz, a longtime committee friend who's currently the Moynihan Research Fellow and Interim Director of the East Asia Program at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. For some of his other bona fides, Terry is the former Vice President of the Luce Foundation, a trustee and chair of the Harvard Yenjing Institute, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and, we're very pleased to say, a director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and someone that we know we can always turn to for advice and help, and we're very grateful for that, Terry. But the reason for having him with us today is that Terry's written a very interesting book entitled John Birch, A Life, and we're delighted that he's able to talk with me about it today. So, Terry, since you're going to be speaking to a National Committee audience a bit later this afternoon about the content of your book, and I thought some of our listeners might want to view the video of that talk, which can be found at our website, www.ncuscr.org, I thought that perhaps after a brief description of your book, we might spend our time focusing on the making of the book. What prompted you to write it? How did you go about doing so? And what were some of the major challenges that you had to overcome? So, over to you. Thank you, Jan. And uh, it's wonderful to be with you. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to the National Committee's audience. Um, The book about John Birch, uh, in many respects, is an accident. Uh, I had no idea until I started this project about five years ago who John Birch actually was. Like many Americans, I'd heard the name of the John Birch Society, which I associated with right-wing extremism here in the United States, but I honestly didn't have the foggiest idea that John Birch had gone to China in 1940 as a Baptist missionary, and then after Pearl Harbor, which was December 41, uh, joined the U.S. military. That didn't, he didn't actually join up and uh, enlist until July of 1942. But he served as an intelligence officer for Claire Chenault, who was the famous leader of the Flying Tigers in China. Uh, And at the end of the war in 1945, August, in fact, just 10 days after the surrender of Japan on August 15, he was on a final mission for uh, the intelligence uh, service, the OSS, which is the forerunner of the CIA. And uh, there was an altercation with a group of of, uh, Red Army soldiers, the Red Army soldiers were in the process of uh, fighting Japanese who had not yet surrendered, and uh, he was shot and killed. And uh, that might have been the end of the story right there, but five years later, a senator from uh, California, William Noland, uh, stood up uh, after the outbreak of the Korean War and said John Birch was a hero murdered in cold blood by the Chinese communists. 
Well, at the time of Birch's death, of course, the Americans and the Chinese communists were actually working together to defeat the Japanese. So Nolan's claim was not accurate. But a name, man named Robert Welch picked up on the story, and in the late 1950s, in the, the height of the Cold War, he decided to name uh, his organization for John Birch, who he considered to be the first uh, victim, the first casualty uh, of the Cold War. And so that's the, the long and the short of it, but uh, it was a story that, uh, I, as I say, I didn't know about until I began the project, and I just became fascinated. So you didn't know about it when, you just said you didn't know about it when you started the project, then what made you begin the project? Well, I had heard about the Birch Society, and when I literally just stumbled on something saying that he had been a missionary and okay. a soldier in China, I thought, this is such a strange story. I It just piqued my curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I started by investigating the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. And that's where the classified files of the OSS are held. And lo and behold, there is a, a uh, thick folder on the death of John Birch. There was a detailed investigation of this. It did capture the attention of the American leadership and was actually the subject of a conversation, a heated conversation between none other than Mao Zedong and the commanding U.S. commanding general, Albert Wiedemeyer. And this happened only five days after the death of Birch. And the transcript of that conversation made me uh, that much more curious about uh, what had actually happened um, whether the death was premeditated, and I conclude in the book that it was not on the part of the communists, that it was uh, accidental, um, and really a, a, you know, a product of the fact that uh, Birch himself was exhausted. He had walked into an area where fighting was going on. The communists had orders to disarm, uh, detain and disarm intruders. Uh, so that's where I got started, but then uh, I wasn't sure if I could really get a sense of who Birch was as a man, as a human being. And I was working on a, an unrelated project, uh, an article about a, uh, the president of a Chinese Christian university, Huachung University. And I was at Yale Divinity School uh, researching this other project, and I happened to mention that I was thinking about John Birch to the curator of the uh, mission archives at Yale. And uh, this woman, Martha Smalley, said to me, well, I think that name rings a bell, and we may have some materials that we just received fairly recently from a woman who was in Changsha in Hunan province, working with Yale China, which was the reason these materials were donated to Yale, the Yale China Association, she was an, an American nurse, and her name was Marjorie Tooker. And Birch had gone early in his military career to Changsha, and he'd met Marjor Marjorie Tooker, and they fell in love. And they corresponded uh, through the end of the war. And when he was in North China, he was quite lonely and quite isolated, and he poured out his heart to Marjorie in these letters. And so it was through those letters I began to see 
uh, a, a, get a sense of who he actually was. That's fascinating. And I must say, having read the book, which I highly recommend to everyone, uh, I found that part of the book uh, one of my favorite parts, not just talking about Marjorie, but some of his other two loves, that this Baptist missionary who was supposed to be so straight-laced and conservative and sort of a loner that he had. And it really, for me, it made him come alive as a person because he's really quite beautifully. You, You only excerpt a few parts of these letters, but they were all quite touching and really made him come alive. And he was someone who, um, during college, and then he had a, a year in a small Bible seminary uh, in, in, in uh, Texas. He went to College of Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Uh, he had no time for dating, and he had no money. He, his family was very poor. Uh, grew up uh, uh, in New Jersey and then in Georgia. Uh, but when he got to China and joined the military. He did have not a lot of time because he was frequently in the field, but he did have a little bit more money. And he had decided that it was time to meet someone and get married. (laughs) And so he actually had affairs with three different women, as you know from the book. Uh, Marjorie Tucker, I think, was the most serious uh, ultimately, although he was engaged for a short time to a Scottish nurse, uh, Audrey Mayer. And then he also fell in love with a Chinese-American woman who was working with the 14th Air Force, Dorothy Ewan. So how did you go about doing this? You, you got prompted by your curiosity about this person, and you went to the archives first in Washington and then at Yale. But were you able to gather enough about him that you felt confident, or, or how did you gather enough to make you feel confident that you could actually write a full book on him? Well, it took time, and it was uh, it was fitting the jigsaw puzzle together, or, or it was a real uh, treasure hunt, and it was also a detective story, kind of un, you know, putting these pieces together uh, about his death and about the, uh, you know, the details of how he came to be named uh, for the Birch Society. And I, I think the next big breakthrough for me was uh, locating uh, his three brothers, the three surviving brothers. It was a family of seven children, one, one girl, six boys, and three of the brothers are still alive now in their late 80s, early 90s. And I was able to talk with them on the phone and then visit them in person wow. in Georgia and Tennessee. And uh, each of them was extremely generous, extremely open with me, uh, sharing their memories and letters and photographs. Um, the, the brother in uh, Macon, Georgia, uh, Robert Birch, uh, is kind of the family archivist. And so he had many of the, the letters, the John's original letters that had been written to the family, uh, written to his parents. And, of course, this is in the day and age when people actually wrote letters instead of yes. emails. <laughs> and so that was a, a blessing. Right. I also was able to find uh, additional evidence about the story uh, in the archives of the Hoover Institution. The papers of Albert Wiedemeyer and Walter Judd had information about the three Americans that were with Birch at the time that Birch was shot and killed. And those three Americans, along with uh, several uh, Chinese, uh, Guomindang Chinese, uh, Nationalist Chinese, and Koreans, two Koreans, uh, 
were uh, detained. The Americans were taken to Yan'an, the the uh, communist uh, headquarters, and it took two months, two months for them to make that journey, and they were finally then released. Uh, so that, in and of itself, was a rather dramatic story. Two months, and it wasn't that far in terms of distance that the incident occurred in Yan'an, was it? I mean, well, today... it was a fair piece. Yeah, today, of course, you'd have a high-speed right. train or, <laughs> or a superhighway. Uh, the last leg of the trip, they actually flew, but the first half of the journey uh, was by foot, and uh, it was it was slow and it was hard. It was grueling, but their observations about what was happening in the countryside and what they learned from the communists and so forth was was quite revealing. I think. Are any of them still alive? Those three? No, I have not been able to uh, identify any of them. I d- they are not surviving. But I was able to locate uh, through the help of a friend. Uh, a a man who was 18 years old uh, in 1945 and had been with Birch not on that final mission, but uh, immediately before that on a base in Anhui province. And this gentleman, uh, Donald Wilmot, was a Canadian, or is a Canadian, uh, raised by missionaries, missionary parents in Chengdu, and because he was in China and the Canadians weren't really uh, operating in China at that point, he volunteered for the American Army, the OSS. And the OSS was eager to recruit people uh, like him who spoke some Chinese, who knew the language, knew the culture, and so forth. So I was able to go up to Owen Sound, Canada, in the province of Ontario, and meet uh, Donald and Liz Wilmot, and he shared with me his... Uh, his letters and diaries and memories, which are quoted in the book about this uh, base in Anhui. So was that your biggest challenge, just in finding people and archival material, letters that was able that, that helped you piece this together, or were, you, were there other challenges that you faced? That certainly was a challenge, and it was a lot of fun. Right. Uh, I was able Sounds to like locate it. a... A lengthy transcript of an oral history interview that the 14th Air Force uh, Historical Office had done with John Birch only mm-hmm. a few months before his death, because he was the first of these field intelligence officers. So he spoke in some detail about how he encountered Jimmy Doolittle and some of his crew uh, who had just bombed Japan, bombed Tokyo. Uh, and this was before Birch joined the military. But to be honest, one of the biggest challenges came as a surprise, and that was getting permissions for uh, letters and uh, uh, other articles that were unpublished. According to U.S. copyright law, uh, you have to, if, if it's been written uh, within, the, within the 20th century, let's say, uh, you know, certain periods of time. It's complex law, but it has. You have to, if it was written within uh, seventy years of the author's death, you have to get permission. Uh, or either <laughs> if the author's still living, obviously go to the right. author. But it, otherwise, if it's if it's seventy years has not expired, which was the case for the letters that I'm quoting, okay. you have to go to their heirs. So tracking down the sons and daughters of uh, the people who wrote these letters 
was quite a job. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time at Ancestry.com and, <laughs> and uh, looking at obituaries and so forth. So it's serendipitous that, A, you wrote this during a time when there are such things as Ancestry.com, yeah. and that you happened into the Yale Library um, just quite soon after Marjorie Tooker had sent in her or I guess her her children had sent her materials to exactly. the, the library. The, Otherwise, you might not have pursued this. Exactly, which would have been a shame because it's interesting, and it, it's interesting not just because it's a it's a slice of history that we don't know a whole lot about, and I don't think the story of the missionaries as anything mm-hmm. other than missionaries in China it has yet been told, and that's something that someone might want to pursue. But also because of the nature of what happened, not to John Birch himself, but to his name, and to how it was appropriated or actually misappropriated by others, and what relevance that has to our current political situation. I mean, I think it's it's very very timely book because of that latter point. Mm -hmm. I, I I think you put it very well, and I think it really is a story about the use and misuse of history, and it's a cautionary tale uh, about how we, how we interpret China, how we understand China. Well, with that, I hope that's enough to entice people to, once they listen to this, to go to, as I said, www.ncuscr.org and look at what I'm sure is going to be a really interesting and excuse me, much longer discussion of your book. So, Terry, thank you very much for joining us today, and we look forward to our listeners um, appreciating your comments here and on the website's video. Thanks. Thanks.